Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics and that we ask that you use your own discretion when listening or that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lambert. Today's episode is the second of our three-part series on eating disorder advocacy and policy. In our first episode, we talked with Katrina Velasquez about lawmaking basics, and she helped us understand how the federal legislative process works and helped lay the groundwork for the closer look we'll take today at advocacy and its importance to this whole process. Here to help us explore this topic is Chase Bannister. Chase is the CEO and principal of Bannister Consultancy, a consultancy practice that works to advance meaningful healthcare policy and access to high quality of care. He has served the eating disorders field in various capacities over the years. He's a licensed clinical social worker, a certified eating disorder specialist, the founder and a former executive of treatment centers, and a key speaker and leader in many professional associations. Chase played a significant role in ensuring the inclusion of the Anna Weston Act within the 21st Century Cures Act, and is currently the president of the Eating Disorders Coalition for Research, Policy, and Action. We are thrilled to have you here with us, Chase. And as I've said to only a few podcast guests in the last week, you are definitely one of my favorite people and so excited to have you on the podcast with us. I cannot be more privileged and honored to share space with you virtually or otherwise. It may be in this world. Uh, you, Jillian, are such a treasure, not only as a friend and a human being, but just for the work that you have done in this world through your work with the Emily Program, with Red Sea, and with the Eating Disorders Coalition, uh, literally changing the face of quality eating disorders care around the country. So. You know, if there is an affinity here, I, I can assure you it is mutual. And I, uh, you know, and I'm just really honored to to be asked to share time and space with you here. Absolutely, thank you. So we're going to continue this eating disorders legislation conversation. So we've already outlined with Katrina the amazingness that Katrina and her team are. Outline the steps of the legislative process, the, uh, you know, I'm just a bill process, if you will. So we followed the path from idea to bill to law, and mostly as it involves you know, legislators themselves. So today we'd like to talk more about the other groups and individuals involved in the process, and specifically the advocacy groups. So as I mentioned, you're the board president of the, of the Advocacy Coalition, lovingly called the EDC for short. Tell us a little bit about the EDC. Tell us about what the Eating Disorders Coalition is, uh, maybe what a coalition from an advocacy perspective is more generally, and then a bit about the EDC specifically. Who's in it? What's the purpose? What's the mission? All that good stuff. Oh my gosh. Talk about good stuff all the way from the inside out. You know, I'm thrilled to talk about and and sort of to walk through just really the the grace and the effort and the hard work that has gone into the creation of the Eating Disorders Coalition for Research, Policy, and Action. And um, everyone might know, and I appreciate, Jillian, you're so saying, that I do like the full title. I realize that brevity is not necessarily one of my strong suits, uh, nor is it with the title of, of our organization, uh, but it does speak directly to what we do, the Eating Disorders Coalition for Research, Policy, and Action. And, you know, to take some of those words apart, to talk a little about, you know, what it means. Uh, we are, of course, at root, an organization dedicated to the recognition of eating disorders as a public health priority throughout the United States. You know, brass tacks, that's what we do. That's what our mission is. Our, our mission is to say, hey, folks who, you know, are working to recover from eating disorders, folks who may be at risk of, for eating disorders, their family members, all of those who support them, the organizations and institutions that look out for them in other ways, education, uh, military, workplace environments, that they all have what they need to make sure that, that folks with eating disorders are cared for in the best way that we possibly can. Uh, you and I both know, and many of your listeners will know, that we have come a long way in the treatment of eating disorders and certainly of what we know. We do not know enough, 
Uh, and that's really, I think, centrally what we're, what we're about is, is helping make sure that there are resources and ongoing activities to say, hey, how do we learn more? How do we create a world, a world space, a, a community that says we need to direct funding, we need to direct time, we need to direct intellect and resources to, uh, to, to think about this problem, think about eating disorders and make sure that they don't fall off the radar as something that's not as important or is, is sort of ancillary to what goes on in the world. No, this affects millions of people. And I, you know, I, I can say for my own part, I have attended too many funerals or eulogies and wakes uh, for uh, young persons and, and older persons alike who have died of this illness, and I don't want to go to anymore. And whereas, of course, saying that uh, you know we have the mission of recognition of eating disorders as a federal mental health priority throughout uh, the United States. The bottom line is that we need to save some lives. And how we do that uh, is what this coalition is about. And that's, that's sort of a, an important term, the, the coalition, uh, the coming together. Because, you know, the Eating Disorders Coalition, it doesn't exist on its own. Uh, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent in the concept of, of community, uh, that it does take communities and villages of people to make change happen in this world. Individuals make a remarkable difference, but the exponential power of individuals to be influential when they are in communities of people who also want to lift up those same values, those same goals, is, uh, is striking to me. Uh, the coalition is made up itself of organizations who are also doing work who are also doing education, who are doing treatment providers. Uh, there are some attorneys and groups that work for eating disordered families as they work through insurance matters. We have, um, we have physicians, we have our friends at the Residential Eating Disorders Consortium, uh, the EMILY program, uh, as well as the With All Foundation. You know, even me, you know, I, you know, I and my, my own organization, and y'all let me in, which I think is just very, very kind of you. That coalition, each understanding that we all can't have every answer to the problems that we have. Eating disorders are uh, too uh, a large a concept, too, too grand a concept to be able to tackle by one group. One group cannot do that. We need the folks who are researchers. We need the scientists. We need the parents and the families. We need those who are in recovery or wanting to recover. We need those who haven't even quite come to terms with the fact that they have illness but want to have a community. We need to have providers involved. All of those groups gathered together create and form the coalition that is, you know, it was 40 and now upwards of 50 members. So when we speak, our job is to speak on behalf of all of those groups who are attempting to make meaningful and lasting change and make a mark on uh, eating disorders care and uh, uh, treatment and prevention. Uh, I, I, wanna, I would be remiss if I didn't mention prevention, like our friend uh, Dr. Bren Austin, uh, president of uh, the Academy for Eating Disorders, which is also one of our members, and uh, striped uh, her group at the Harvard Catalyst is uh, also uh, a member of the Eating Disorders Coalition for Research, Policy, and, and, and Action. You know, and I was doing what I, I do, and I, I mean, I'm, an, I'm a bit of a nerd, and I'll, I'll, I'll claim that, uh, and perhaps revealing the fact that I, you know, my, my undergraduate work was in English language and literature with rhetoric. Uh, you know, etymology matters. Where does that word come from? Ad, you know, advocacy. And, you know, and there are a number of ways to look at it, but largely it seems to be borrowed from about the seventh century in France, in old French, not in middle French or modern French, but old French, navocat, meaning uh, someone who stands in appeal for, someone who, who stands to hope for which in itself comes from an even more ancient word uh, from Greek, 
Parakletos, uh, which some of you may have heard more in the English uh, translation of it as paraclete. Para meaning with and klein meaning called to and called to be with. And, and, and I think breaking down that word that way as those who are called to be with. Call, we are called to sit alongside. And in, in some definitions, it would be you know, particularly meaningful to me is, is one I came across. It says, one who pleads and advocates for the body. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I took great pause when I read that. You know, one who, one who pleads and advocates for the body. And, and, and eating disorders, particularly uh, uh, the illnesses, which affect the body, and of course the mind, which is part of the body, and relationships, which are part of the mind and the heart or the soul and the body, that we plead on behalf of, of them. Um, that is the work of, of advocacy. And in some traditions, going back to major religions, Christianity, Islam, Muslim, um, even far back as some of Demosthenes' writings, is an intercessor. Again, somebody who stands in the gap. And I don't know about you, but right now, it feels like that word is of paramount, essential, baseline importance as we learn in, as communities, what does it mean to stand on behalf of another? You know, because, and if we, there is no one-to-one -one comparison, of course, and I won't even pretend to make that. But I will say that, you know, that work of standing in the gap, pleading on behalf of, speaking on behalf and pleading for the body, um, that there is a certain sacredness about that, where, you, you, you know, this is not just folks who, have eating disorders or who have known eating disorders. It's people who have studied it, who maybe have never had one. You know, I'll, I'll speak personally. I come from a, a tradition, I, I, I didn't have an eating disorder, so can I be an advocate? And, and the answer is, is, is yes. Uh, and not only yes, but it becomes a categorical imperative for me um, as a clinician, um, as a provider. And just frankly, as, as a human who sees other folks who uh, have been underserved and sometimes disregarded, and we have opportunities to change that. Now, our particular specialty as a coalition is to work toward uh, regulatory, federal, legislative change and to ultimately get some things signed into law. And, and that we do rather well. I know you got your civics lesson from uh, Katrina Velasquez, Esquire who is truly remarkable in her work and who has guided us for many, many years. So uh, laconicism never being my gift. I know I talk a lot and uh, there is that, that uh, famous phrase uh, that in the, in the works of Harry Potter that, you know, words are in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic capable of, both inflicting injury and remedying it. And those uh, are parts uh, and maybe even central parts uh, of the work of advocacy is finding those words showing up and beginning the work of remedying that which has been injured. And supporting that which has been achieved. The vision you painted is so beautiful of, of the Eating Disorders Coalition standing, you know, on Capitol Hill at the federal level and in every interested email inbox and text uh, everywhere we can to stand for, to stand with, to, to be in that gap. It's so important. Say a little bit about, you know, the, the EDC has been involved for a long time on the Hill, been there for 20 years now. and. You and I and, and Joanna, a, a later guest on this podcast, and uh, Katrina and Kitty Weston, and many folks that we all know and, and dearly love have been at this work for, for a, long, a long time. 
And there's been a lot that's happened and a lot more to happen, right? It takes takes time. It sometimes takes excruciatingly long time to get something passed on the Hill into, into federal legislation or even a, an agency level change. Yes, it does. <laughs> certainly can. So at what points does the EDC get involved in the lawmaking policy process? Can you speak a little to that? You know, I can. I, I will do my darndest to, 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 to make it linear. But the, uh, the, the reality of it is, is it isn't linear. The, the way that the Eating Disorder Coalition for Research Policy and Action, or I might abbreviate to EDC sometimes for the purposes of your podcast, is that the EDC, uh, you know, is involved in a, um, uh, in a circular process, an iterative process with law. We are there at the inception on so many things that have to do with eating disorders. We think of, uh, you know, we think, it seems weird to say we think of the problem because the problems that we have, the issues that we have to confront are beyond magnitude that we can grasp and, and, and deal with all at once. This is why we have fabulous researchers again and uh, lots of organizations who are, are working on different parts. But when we can think of something in, we've encountered as a problem, we've encountered as a, a stumbling block for folks to get adequate care or for folks to, you know, maybe even things that we might be doing or might be in law that it might be harmful or might put a person who may be at risk or might not otherwise be at risk, suddenly at risk of eating disorder behaviors and eating disorder, you know, the sequel thereof. And so, yes, we get involved by going, you know, hello, knock, 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 knock. Here, we have an idea for you. How about this? Jillian, you and I have sat at tables and, and drafted those ourselves, really, because some people have a, an impression that lawmakers uh, sit around and they write the law uh, and then they, they vote on the law, yes or no, and then scribes take account of that and, and then their equals law. It does make sense from that. There's just a bill on Capitol Hill. But what that doesn't take into account is that those folks are attending to every facet of human society. And that, that's, you know, we charge them with, with our protection, with parts of our health care, with increasingly of import with matters of justice and equality. Often left out of, the, uh, of that, the, I'm just a bill, is the folks who come and say, hey, I have the idea. And here is even some language that might work. What do you think? How about passing this? Now, uh, of course, uh, we don't say it exactly that way, and it certainly takes a lot longer than that to do. Um, but we knock on a lot of doors. We find and develop relationships with people, with lawmakers. And let me pause here to say lawmakers and their most amazing staffs. People also have, uh, you know, I, and I, I included, you know, I took civics like everybody else did. Uh, you, you think about, oh, well, the, the senators and the congressmen and congresswomen doing their part. We see them on C-SPAN. Yes, I'm a nerd. Yes, I watch C-SPAN. I don't know why it's not high definition on television yet. We'll talk about that another day. They have so much to attend to. They also can't get it all done. They, they don't sit down and write the law. The, the folks that do is they have dedicated staff members. They have, this is part of the civics lesson I know you already got from Katrina, uh, but developing relationships with those folks who work for senators, who work for congressmen and women, folks whose portfolios may be healthcare and education perhaps, or labor and, and in healthcare, but in some way healthcare is often part of their work. And and you think, well, but they're only elected to office for so long and, and they may not get elected. But how, you know, why would you bother developing a relationship with those folks? Well, what we learn are those staffers end up, you know, staying on in Capitol Hill, moving through departments and agencies and maybe even working up through multiple congressmen and women, multiple Senate officers and what they have to do and what they have to say. Those relationships that we started 15 years ago when we really need it can come bear fruit. And that's when people ask me, why do you bother? Because it's just, I, I mean, and I get it. There are days, I have those days. I have, I, I mean, I do. 
I have those days where I want to bury my head in the sand and go, what is it all for? But then I remember staffers who move through various offices, and I remember conversations that I had with them years ago, and they'll tell me, well, you know, I remember when you came and first talked to me about eating disorders, and I had no idea. And, and you can't blame them for that. That's not an ignorance part that is at fault for them. It's the world doesn't know. We're working really hard. That's, part of, that's partly on us is to continue the work of making sure so that you have an idea. So what's the knocking on the door? We're coming to bring you the idea, not only of the legislation, but an idea of the problem. And then in years later, when we come back to a, a maybe even another office and knock, 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 and guess who answers? That same staffer, but in a different office at a different time, who says, I remember when you came in and, and I remember thinking I had no idea. How did that go? Did, were we able to be helpful? They might say. The answer is almost always yes, because I, we remember and, you know, we may or may not be charged with paying attention to these things. And what a difference that makes and even uh, in creating those relationships with staffers, because people don't really know it, but staffers run the government. And that's a pretty amazing thing. So, yes, we are there at inception. And yes, we are there when problems arise. Because, you know, things happen with insurance and certain uh, treatments might not be covered. And we're, you know, we get reports of it. Lots of things come up through email and our other organizations. They come and they tell us and they say, oh, oh, gosh, this is happening. This is happening. Well, we could just, you know, rub our hands together and say, well, you know, well, that just stinks, doesn't it? And sometimes it is it's true. It's just awful. But we can do something about that. A lot of folks don't know that they can. So we'll, we'll say, all right, we've got this problem. We'll find out who it is that carries the influence. Who is it that carries the sort of the banner? Or, and I, again, would be remiss to not mention staffers and, and members of Congress alike are also humans. And so by the power of statistics, they also know people who have had eating disorders have children perhaps who have had eating disorders, are related to folks who have had eating disorders, have family members. So they know, they, they have seen, they have heard. And often we, uh, we say, well, here's the problem. The next question is, well, how can I help? As, um, as skeptical as we can get sometimes, a lot of these folks, who work on Capitol Hill really do, at the end of the day, have a desire to make change and, and, and to help where they can. And that, and so much of that help they want to give has to be informed by people who care about the issues, right? That they, they have lots of things they care about, and there may be things that they are not aware need to be cared about. And so that's one of the biggest functions, I think, of an advocate and certainly an advocacy group like the EDC to make sure that the issues are heard. Right. You know, and bringing them and we call them, you know, I've learned to call them infographics. You know, I, I used to call them brochures and that's apparently passe. Um, so your infographics that say, hey, did you know this and this and this is going on? And a lot, and we get often get shocked uh, responses like, "Oh no, we didn't know that's going on," because the law is is not a pamphlet, right? You know, the law is a compendium, you know, bookshelves worth of writing, and some of it contradicts some each other, and who reports to whom, all that. And so, when we bring an issue about, say, insurance coverage or uh, prevention measure measures or what. Uh, folks are how folks are funded to get appropriate treatment in the military and military families. They'll go, are you serious? Hey. With an assumption that it would never be that way. Well, of course, there would be never an intent to leave out this group. And so we, we bring a very large highlighter and we say highlight and we highlight the infographic pamphlet. And, and we say here. We might be able to do something about that. Let me, let me, let me take this, let me take this to my bosses. That's where I, I didn't get used to that very easily. 
because, uh, you know, I think of the senators and the congressmen and congresswomen, um, but, but, you know, they all call them their bosses. So uh, forget, if, I, if I slip into that language, it's, it's, it's me pretending to have the Washington, D.C. lingo, uh, you know, bring this to your boss. I mean, bring it to our elected official and see if they will sign on. And sometimes that takes some doing. Um, sometimes that takes uh, weeks. Sometimes that takes months. In some cases, it's taken years. And I have been a part, I, 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 I do remember uh, one time, I always say my, um, uh, my, my Capitol Hill shoes are well-worn, and you can tell by the bottom of the feet uh, about, how, about how walking up and down those hallways, uh, I, you know, and I, I, I've kept some of those shoes, even though they're now remarkably out of fashion. I, I, I kept them because they, they mean something to me, those, in the words of, uh, of, of a person uh, born here in Durham, Polly Murray, who wrote a book about proud shoes. It's called Proud Shoes, about her work in uh, racial inequality uh, and eventually becoming a mentor to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and friend to Eleanor Roosevelt. Those are proud shoes to have, to walk around Congress, to knock on the doors. I remember knocking on a door and I thought I had no chance in hell. Excuse my language for those who are listening who um, may have concerns with my parlance. Uh, but if you'll forgive me that, um, I thought I had no chance in hell. And so what I'd, what, what I, what I'd done is really talked with a family who was from that district. Um, and I'm sure Katrina talked to you about how there's people talk about who's the most important person in Washington. Um, and, and, you know, people will think about, oh, well, is it the secretary of this or the uh, leader of that or the, this majority person? No. The most important person in Washington is the constituent. The most important person in Washington is us. So I walked into that senator's office once my senator moons ago, and I brought with me not only greetings from my own family, whom he did not know, but a handwritten letter from someone who currently lives in that state saying, you know, this is a problem. Can you help? And I didn't make it out the door of, of doing that first initial knock before I had a signed piece of paper that says, I want to be on this. I want to co-sponsor this. I, I want to be a part of it. And I've never thought in a million years. But we do have to have the gumption to take something that is so important. If it is so important to us, and it is, we have to have the gumption to go knock on a door ask a question and say, here's what I need. Can you please help? And more oftentimes than not, through multiple iterations, the answer ultimately is, is, is yes. Now, with that being said, sometimes we've, you know, we've introduced a number of things over the years that didn't fly. I mean, I don't know, Jillian, if you guys have talked about um, you know, the FREED Act at all, uh, if that's come up, the federal response for the elimination of eating disorders, uh, which was just the most epic, beautiful, comprehensive bill for eating disorders that anyone on earth could have dreamt of. It would have cost $65 quadrillion or some other amount of money that I can't begin to fathom and thus was never going to fly. Is it what's needed? Yes, it's what's needed. Is the stuff in the Freed Act that was wrote uh, important? Yes, it's important. Yes, it would make a dramatic uh, impact upon the problem. But there, there are realities to this work about knocking and asking, what is it that we're asking for? Are we asking for things that can happen? Are we thinking about the context and the environment of a certain political climate? And, and, and to be able to use those things to our advantage and not pretend that they don't exist. We don't change the story about the seriousness of the illness, but we do have to think about what are creative ways that we can, perhaps not an inception of a single bill that we want to pass on its own, but we happen to see in the shadows another bill that's, you know, making its way um, I'm thinking of that song, Making My Way Downtown. I don't know why that came to my brain, but it sure did. But it's making its way downtown Washington. 
And it has something to do with healthcare, but there sure is an opportunity that we might be able to insert a word, a term, eating disorders, you know, or we might be able to put a little paragraph in there somewhere. And it won't mean too much to the bill, but ultimately the down ballot, if you'll forgive that pun, but the down ballot effect of it could be breathtakingly enormous. So the Freed Act imperfect. So what do we do? Well, I'll see if I can say this nicely. Well, we gutted it because it was never going to fly. Uh, the folks at Eating Disorders Coalition have to be on our toes because we are the bastion of creativity. We have to figure out how to make it work. Uh, there's a television show about fashion design, I think, where I think his name is Tim Gunn. And he, you know, he says, well, you know, make it work. And, and, and we have to figure out how to do that. How do we make do with what we've got? That is, a for me, a, a family tradition. Uh, you know, I come from a farm in South Carolina where we didn't have much. Uh, and so we make, we make do with what we have. And sometimes that feels like it's not quite enough. But at the end of the day, we got somewhere and we, you know, in my family, we were, we were, we were fed. We had what we needed. And so how is it that we can get those baseline needs met to get it to the critical elements and say, all right, how do we get to that, that pass? Uh, which is ultimately how we ended up with the Anna Weston Act that came into the 21st century cures is because we found ways to say, here are the absolute basic needs that we need. And it, uh, and it became a great starting place for us. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Chase. That makes me think it dovetails so nicely into one of the thoughts I'm having is around the work of the EDC now. And, and I know part of the, the FREED Act was looking at availability of treatment, right? That's one of the number one concerns of advocates. I can't get access to care. I need to get access to care. I need coverage for my insurance company for that care. And that is a, a stark reality. It's a clear issue. And it's a giant problem that getting everyone access to care for eating disorders who has an eating disorder across the entire country is a really tall order. And there are many of us who think it should need to be such a tall order, right? Let's do that. We should be able to do that to treat these illnesses that have the second highest mortality rate of any mental health diagnosis. We should be able to treat people and people should be able to get treatment. But it is a more complicated issue than just getting people coverage. So the EDC took on that, you know, heard that charge, heard that request from the advocates and talked through how to get treatment more accessible. And so that big ask has broken down into some smaller asks. And so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to the bill that the EDC, one of the many things the EDC is currently working on right now is related to, is called the Nutrition Care Act and is related to access to, to one part of care, but a, a really important part of care. And, and of course, I'm, I'm a dietitian by training, so I think nutrition is an exceptionally important part of care. I'm a little biased, but I think, I think my fellow providers agree with me and certainly lots of, of people struggling with an eating disorder would agree that getting nutrition care is a really important part of the, the path they need to tread for eating disorder care. Can you say a little bit about how the EDC will pave the path to getting, hopefully getting that coverage for nutrition in a, in a, a more narrow scope that we hope will go more broad? Say more about the work of the EDC right now. This was the dangersome quality of your inviting me on a program to talk about something I uh, am uh, remarkably passionate about. Um, is I do have a tendency to, to overtalk and to, and, and to really want to get at what are the central points? What is it that we're doing? Uh, one of the things that we're working on with the Nutrition Care Act, Nutrition Counseling, Aiding Recovery for Eating Disorders, I believe, is what that because everybody, everything has to have an act, a name like that or nothing would pass. That, that must be unwritten somewhere, but it is the case. Um, it's, we, you know, we actually came across an issue that I as a provider have seen so many times, 
And that's eating disorders are, you know, have stereotypically been seen as disorders. Well, not only the myths about being disorders of will and choice, uh, that's another day, but rather, you know, disorders of young white teenagers who are, you know, may find themselves middle class and affluent. That's, that's who it is. Well, you know, I know good and well how many folks I've treated and that have been treated at centers and an outpatient and those who don't get treatment at all who are older adults. And uh, books have been written. Research has been published and is currently being done. Cindy Bulick, Christine Pete, doing some great work on that, uh, you know, to, to be able to, to name it. What is it? What's, what does an eating disorder look like? Uh, and someone who uh, is, you know, perhaps 65 years of age or older, that number being used that has something to do with, you know, Medicare. And we found out that folks who are covered by Medicare, which is a fantastic, amazing program, Medicare, part of that societal uh, change that we decided we would do because we did not want to see our parents die poor. And the way that society was set up those moons ago, it almost guaranteed it. Uh, the, the, the money that would run out and therefore there would be, you know, destitution would ensue. And, th and that's a very short and inadequate description, but that is the bottom line. Medicare uh, became sort of a standard and, and allows folks to get the care they need with, you know, while they're retired, when they're no longer working, when they, when they or, or perhaps when they can't work. Because Medicare also covers folks with, with disabilities. A lot of folks don't know that. And, and it's a significant part of the population. And in fact, you, you said, Jillian, that you have a bias. I also have a particular bias toward dietitians, even though I am not one. Dietitians and nurses, I, the world sort of revolves around them, I think. Uh, eating disorder world, I, I really just have to say, I think dietitians... Rarely is it, uh, you know, you have a profession where, you know, folks are, are, are coming and di dietitians are often working with folks who want to make change. And sometimes the illness, uh, illnesses of eating disorders mess with one's foundational perspective such that that's not really something that they are pursuing, uh, that they want to pursue. And so sometimes it becomes an adversarial moment or potentially so. Um, but incredible dietitians such as yourself and so many other of your compatriots um, help ease that transition. Well, wouldn't it be great, you would think, that someone who uh, was finally able because of the news and getting the word out that eating disorders are real and they go seek treatment. Hallelujah. That just, I mean, I, I love that. That makes me so happy. And they see a mental health provider that's covered and that's so great. And then the mental health provider is absolutely clueless about how to help them with a with a meal plan that is appropriate to them and you know all the ways that it might be and so you think okay well you do what you would do which is go see a dietitian and then you find out that well no medicare doesn't cover that uh, not for eating disorders now it, it does cover a handful of visits if you are uh, in care for diabetes or a related condition to that they will medicare do, does cover a few visits and that's, that's great. We, but if you have an eating disorder, you're out of luck. You're just out of luck. You're not going to get any care. How on God's green earth are you supposed to get better only doing talk therapy? Uh, maybe even, you know, the best practice, CBT, uh, FBT, dialectical behavior therapy, all of those wonderful things that each have their place uh, in our world. If you can't help somebody with a food piece, and, and sometimes there are instances where, you know, families really do know how to feed their kids and they have a really great understanding. And it's not the dietitian always saying, well, you better do this, this and this with the wagging finger. It's like, well, how does that dietitian support you and how to manage that situation? It doesn't matter your age. You need access to that. I need an answer. How do I get to it? Well, we know that the Medicare population, folks with disabilities, folks over 65, the discretionary incomes are not often there. Now, you throw in, I have an eating disorder, and you say, well, I see my clinician, and, I, and I'm starting to understand it. I don't have any idea how to manage my meal plan. And where Nutrition Care Act 
will make a difference is by covering for those folks who are in those populations or age 65 and older covered by Medicare and folks with disabilities in the SSDI population will allow them to have at least equitable coverage for those folks who are getting care for diabetes. And, you know, when we knock on doors and we talk with the staff, the answer is, well, that seems very reasonable. And, and, and we're making remarkable strides, even in the fact that we can do calculations. And, and of course, lots of things are about money. Because guess what? This costs money. It does. Because this is adding a new service to uh, an already tight budget for Medicare. Um, but we can figure out that if we can get them that treatment, then there's actually money to be saved in the budget because it will end up in perhaps fewer emergency room visits, perhaps fewer physician visits, perhaps fewer medications, perhaps fewer you know, insert service here because you know an eight day stay in you know on a hospital unit, you know you're looking at eight thousand dollars on a you know if, if if you're lucky it'll be that little. Um, what if we could? put in just regular old outpatient visits with the, the wisdom and the direct skill building that happens there, put that to work, save money, and more importantly, by far, save lives and allow those folks who've given us so much over all of these years a chance to continue to live a full and a better and a healthier life. I think that that is uh, a fight worth taking to the halls. Absolutely. And, and the, the cascading effect that we know that when Medicare changes a policy, often that cascades down through other kinds of insurance. Because I know people often, or I've, I've heard, people will think, well, you know, you're working on this narrow thing or this thing that doesn't impact everybody. And I, I think it's an important strategic objective for people to understand that working on a smaller issue that's, as you say, so beautifully, so important. That here's a smaller but really important issue, and having a win there can then build into the next win and can cascade down so that we're really absolutely hopeful that this bill will be the step towards the next set of bills that cover nutrition services for everybody with an eating disorder. Uh, and, you know, you're put, what you're doing now is you're like pulling back the curtain and, you know, we're seeing the stage crew, which is what the Eating Disorder Coalition, I suppose, really is <laughs> a stage crew, because we're, it's not that we find a random thing and we're like, all right, well, let's just throw this thing out there. We have to be incredibly strategic about it. Um, how is it? What will happen? How can because, you know, also we're working on a remarkably limited budget. I think people would be really, frankly, and flatly amazed about what we've been able to do with with our with our shoes and and, and a handful of dollars uh, and we're going to keep working on that because we in order to do more we're going to have to have more uh, funding at, at some point but the you know the the realities are you pull back the curtain you see that there's a bigger strategy here and that's not a shock to anyone that's not something that oh another legislator or someone's going to hear this podcast and go oh well that's just can't believe they would they would think about it that way they know that they expect that. They see that. They understand how this works. And, and when you see the budgets of the other organizations that work, uh, shall we say, in, in um, uh, opposition to access to care, because it will cost perhaps more out of a, you know, an insurance company's pocket or the pockets of those whose pockets they line, th th there is a... I, I don't even actually know how to put into words because the zeros that go behind that number would baffle folks. Some of it is available online now due to great transparency work that you can go on to a few different websites and see what advocacy budgets are for, let's say, insurance providers or other other groups. What you know, what their lobbying expenditures are. And ours is like a grain of sand. And theirs is the rest of the beach. And so we have a opportunity, but this is why, this is why it does take a village and a community because we're up against something that financially will not be able to match. We can't spend the kind of money 
that some of our, you know, I, I want to, I want to call them peers. It's hard sometimes to do that. We have found ways to work with some of them sometimes. Those are great days. Our job is to help again, act on behalf of and care for those folks who need us in the world of eating disorders. That's really exciting about the new, the Nutrition Care Act. I don't know if you even have had an opportunity to discuss the SERVE Act at all, um, but that's, uh, you know, in, in brief, bringing more care to, to service members and their families uh, to be able, because, you know, lots of folks don't know that folks who are active duty in the military, uh, their dependents, uh, you know, if they're over age 21 and they have an eating disorder illness, guess what? TRICARE does not cover it at all just doesn't doesn't cover it. So what we're, you know, what the Serve Act gives an opportunity for us to consider is, you know, well, how is it that we get those folks covered? How do we get adequate care through Tricare? You know, how do we help get this through authorization? And we are we have made some remarkable remarkable progress uh, with those organizations and I hope that in coming weeks I do believe we'll have some uh, great news to share that will be really positive for our community and really positive for those that serve in our military. And one of the best parts that, of, of the bill itself is, gosh, it asks for COs and commanding officers to be educated, to know what's real for service members who they and their families are at exponentially higher risks for eating disorder and eating disorder-related behaviors the general population. It just makes sense. We just have to go knock on the door and say, hey, there's a thing. Did you know? They tell us back, oh my gosh, I didn't know. How can we help? I think that so sort of eloquently sums up the what I hear in all your descriptions about the work of the EDC is really bringing the voice to those doors, to the doors of, of the congresspersons and their staff, and that you don't have to knock on the actual wooden door. While it is an amazing experience, if one can can advocate on the hill, whether it's your capital in your state or at a federal level, but there's virtual ways to do this as well. So let's uh, let's have our our closing parts be around the EDC has an upcoming virtual advocacy day, which is usually in person, but it's virtual advocacy this this year in September. Say a little bit about maybe even just one part about how simple it can be to be involved, whether it's texting that number or signing up for the virtual advocacy day so that people know how really how easy it can be to take the really valuable stories that we each have and knock on that door really from the comfort of your own webcam now, making it even easier to have your voice be heard. It is going to be easier than posting an Instagram post. This is simply texting a number and clicking a button on your smartphone. It, it takes seconds. Uh, that, that's one thing we use using our phone to action program where the words are already given to you. You put in your name, your address. It finds your congressperson based on your address because that's all out there. It has the words already there in very short, brief form. For it to be, uh, you sort of uh, amalgamated. You click send, and it sends it on your behalf. And minutes ago, literally minutes ago, before I got on this call with you, I got a response from my own senator about the click that took me about, you know, eight seconds to do. And that's not a that that is not a, a Chase Bannister, uh, you know, exaggeration. I am prone to such, but. You know, this really took eight seconds and I got a detailed response from my senator and more, more than likely that senator's staff who works very closely with him and, and says, you know what? Yeah, I'm on board with this, you know, and look toward a, a pretty cool day ahead. And here are some specifics that we're working on. That's one way. Um, what we're working on in advocacy day. And again, the pandemic around the world is a scary thing for many people and we have to do our part. And though community, as we talked about sitting with, gathering for, pleading on behalf of the body, it is important to be, you know, in a corporealized space with, you know, with others. And 
there are times when actually uh, being, not being present is the gift. That's where we are now. And I, and I believe my public health colleagues would hopefully give that a reasonable thumbs up. And how we can do that is, uh, is we can create meetings with those staff persons on, uh, on Zoom and other like applications. These, you know, things that we've all learned how to use pretty well. And I can, and I can get face to face with the staffer, the person who is advising their boss, their, uh, the member of Congress about how they should vote, what they should do, what they can do for their constituents. We can get one on one meetings and you don't have to leave your couch. And those meetings might be five minutes. They might be 20 minutes. They usually aren't longer than that uh, because they get what they need. And then our job as the coalition is to do the legwork, the follow up, the conversations, to sit down to then uh, help craft the law, figuring out how it moves through and gets passed. And then people actually get help and lives get saved. But we don't get to that point unless somebody sits on the couch in the chair on the lawn and spends five to 20 minutes saying, hey, I got a thing. And if you can't do that, all right. Um, it, and we'll give you the talking points. But if you can't do that, all right, then give me eight seconds and click a button. Otherwise, delete your Instagram. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. I am appreciative of, of all of you uh, and for what you're doing. So thank you for that precious gift of time uh, and, and lending me uh, a few moments to talk about that, which is truly important to my life. Chase, thank you so much. Thank you for all you've done. And thank you certainly for joining us today. And we look forward to continuing the conversation so we can hear about the evolving work of the Eating Disorders Coalition and the good news to be celebrated. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the EMILY program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at EMILY program. Peacemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.